we continue our study in this little book at the end of your New Testament, the book of Jude. This is the sixth time that we have gathered and considered its contents together. And uh, we will not be here next week. And the intent is that we would finish this up shortly. We are halfway through the book, uh, but there's some <clears throat> great things that await us here in the final part of the book of Jude. But I would like to just remind everyone, and, and maybe this is something monotonous to you, and you think, why does he always do this? Um, I always try to start with giving us the context and kind of the setting of the book that helps us keep everything together. Repetition is probably your least favorite thing, right? Uh, I'm not being um, speaking down to you by repeating these things. It just helps us, and it helps me as your pastor to know that when you on your own in the future someday open to this little book of Jude, you have a framework uh, about it in which to read it. And so that helps me to think that is the case. And so uh, I repeat this uh, frequently as we look together at this book. So let's do that together. How, how is this book laid out? How, how would you approach it? What are its, uh, its structure? What does that look like? It's really quite plain. If, if you look at the first verse, we're introduced to the writer, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. He's the brother of James. And he's writing to those who are called. These people are beloved of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You might say kept by Jesus Christ. They are they are secured by Christ. And that's how the book opens. The writer to the reader, here's their condition. Look at the very end of the book. Look at verse 24. The book closes with, closes with what we call a doxology. It's a praise to God. It's like a prayer of praise to God. But look at the content of this doxology in verse 24. Now to him who is able to what? To keep you. That's how he opened in verse 1, right? And this now is how he closes in praise to God for this keeping. So these are bookends. You have what God does. He, he keeps us. He holds on to us. Why is that so important? Because Jude gives extended discussion in this little book about people who look like they're among the people of God, but they creep in unaware and they're not. And he gives stern warning about that. But he doesn't want to shake the faith of those that are truly kept by God. So he begins and ends this way. Then if you'll go back to verse 3, verse um, yes, three, you see that Jude gives us the purpose that he's writing this. He says, beloved, I, I found it very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's his purpose in writing, to contend for the faith. And that's how we've titled this series, taken right from that statement right out of verse three. Well, the natural question would be how? If we're to contend for the faith, how do we do that? And Jude doesn't answer that question until the very end of the book. In fact, look at verse 20. But you, beloved, 
building yourselves on your most holy faith. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, snatch others out of the fire. Show mercy on them. And here he's addressing this issue of how do we contend for the faith. And that will be yet ahead of us as we examine what he's saying here. Here's how you must contend. Be rooted in God's word. Be praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Have mercy on people that are wrestling with these things. What does that have to do with contending? Well, we'll look at that in a few weeks, Lord willing. So you can see, he says, here's my purpose in writing, contend for the faith. Here's how you'll do it. That's at the end of the book. And then in the middle, you have this long section beginning in verse 5. And it runs all the way down, uh, I believe, to verse 19, where we finished our reading today. In this section, Jude is not answering the question of how to contend for the faith, but he's answering the question of why. Why is it necessary to keep yourselves in the love of God and be rooted in praying in the Holy Spirit? And what he does is he gives a series of Old Testament examples that instructs us that it has always been the case that there are people among the people of God that have betrayed the faith. He gives two sets of three Old Testament examples. We've seen this in the past. Look at verse 5. He talks about Israel in the wilderness, those that came out of the land of Egypt. Not all of them went into the promised land because of their unbelief. He talks in verse 6 about the angels who left their position of authority, their rightful place. Verse 7, he talks about the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and its surrounding cities and the sin that they were involved in that defied God's authority. He applies those examples in verses 8, 9, and 10 to the current audience. He says, these people among you are like those three illustrations I just gave you. And they too will experience judgment like those people did. And then beginning in verse 11, he gives us three more Old Testament examples. Woe to them, these people among you. They walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Here's Cain and Balaam and Korah. And he gives these three Old Testament examples. And he says, they're like those people in that they were influential and influenced others wrongly. And he says, woe to them. God knows what's in their heart. He knows their judgment is coming. He applies that to them in verses 12 and 13. And that brings us to our text this morning. Now beginning in verse 14 and running all the way down through the 19th verse, he's going to give us two warnings. Really, the whole book is like a warning. And Jude says, I'm not the only one who warns you about these kinds of things. Let me give you two. One is ancient and one is current in Jude's context. So this morning, I want to preach to you on contending for the faith, but contending by being alert and heeding God's warnings. God's warnings in particular regarding false teachers among the church. Let's pray, and we'll look at this more closely.
Lord, thank you for this word that has been preserved for us. And help us now as we set our minds upon it to know that it is your word. And it's your word that does its work, that warns us, that opens our eyes and enlightens us to what is true. So may we be faithful to it today. And may we contend for the faith in our own lives. And may we do so by being alert and noting what you have said. That there's reason to be alert. There's warning because there are people, even among the people of God, that would confess to be among the people of God who desire to lead astray. So give us your mind on these matters, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To earnestly contend for the faith, we all must be alert and heed the warnings of Scripture. It was about 40 years ago, 1984, that an Avianca Airlines jet crashed into a mountainside in the country of Spain. After that jet crashed, the inspectors went over and looked at all the wreckage, and they found among that wreckage the little black box, that flight recorder that records the, the moments even before impact of what happened in this particular plane. What they discovered is that uh, that recorder revealed that, that several minutes before impact, there was a shrill uh, computer-synthesized sounding voice that, that came out in that cockpit and screamed to those pilots, pull up, pull up, pull up. And yet those pilots ignored the warning and eventually said, shut up, gringo, and turned it off. Moments later, that plane and everyone on it perished as it plunged into a hillside. Failure to take warnings seriously can result in dire consequences. Jude's letter is a brief but potent warning to the church of his day and the church in our day of the dangers of a kind of infiltration that is designed to gut the church of its credibility. In verses 14 to 19, Jude adds weight to his warnings by pulling on the quotation of other people in order to sustain his argument that you should heed their warnings. Don't just listen to me, listen to these others that are warning the same thing. One of these warnings was ancient. It's given us in verse 14 from a man named Enoch that we will look at briefly. The other warning, as I said, is contemporary or it's current to Jude's day. In verse 17, he says, remember the warnings of the apostles. And Jude is writing in this first century when at least one of these apostles is still alive. Well, what are these warnings? Why does he quote these people? What do they have to do with false teachers? And how do they apply to us today? Those are some of the questions we need to address this morning as we examine this. 
The theme of Jude is that it's the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that includes heeding these warnings. Be alert and heed the warnings. Look at verse 14 with me. Jude says it was about these. And the these, as David noted in our reading this morning, refers back to those that have crept in unaware, these false teachers. He says, Enoch was saying something about these people in your day. He says it was about these that Enoch, and now the man's identified, the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, all right, who is Enoch? Well, he is identified as the seventh from Adam, and let's just verify that. Go back to Genesis chapter 5. We would know who Adam is, the man created directly by God. And Genesis 5 gives us the generations of Adam, or uh, uh, those that came after Adam. And so Genesis 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Look at verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were so many years, and he had son and daughters, and he died. Uh, Look at verse 6. You now have Seth. When Seth had lived uh, 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Look at verse 9. When Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Verse 12. When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered who? Enoch. And there's our guy. You say, well, this was seventh from Adam. Looks like he's sixth from Adam. But in the Hebrew accounting, these are generations. You would count Adam as the first generation. So if you count Adam as number one, number seven, you land on Enoch. And what do we know about this guy? Well, he actually gets more than he lived so long and then he fathered somebody and died. Enoch has this said about him. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What that means is he didn't experience like what Jared had experienced in the end of verse 20, that he died. God took him. And so Jude is identifying in Jude 14, this is the guy. Enoch said something about what was going on in Jude's day. And what is even going on in our day? Now, the question for us this morning in verse 14 is a difficult one. In fact, I won't be able to answer this, but you'll have to come back tonight. and We're going to discuss some issues around this thing that Jude is saying about Enoch. Because though this is Enoch, where did Jude get this information? How does he know Enoch said this? And what Jude is likely referring to is a book called First Enoch that was written about 200 years before the time of Jesus. Now, if it was written 200 years before the time of Jesus, did Enoch write that book? Enoch lived well before then. But 
in the Jewish custom for about 300 years, 200 years before the time of Jesus to 100 years after the time of Jesus. You had authors writing various works, and these works were referred to as, big word, okay, the pseudepigrapha, which simply means this. Graphe means writing. Pseudo means what? False. And you had people that would take a name of a popular biblical figure and attach it to a work in order that that work would somehow be accepted and distributed among the Jewish people. And there was a book called First Enoch. Enoch was not the author of that book. Nevertheless, it speaks a lot about Enoch, this guy seventh from Adam. And in that book, it says, here's what he said. Now, it appears to me that Jude is actually quoting from that book. And that raises a question. Does that mean this book of First Enoch is inspired? Should it be in the Bible right next to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ruth? If not, why is Jude quoting it? Now, those are all questions. That's a teaser, okay? You're going to have to come back tonight. And we're going to look at, at those questions and dig into that, okay? I don't have time to do that this morning. Here's the key. I don't want to get in the weeds and miss the point. The point is this. Jude is saying, Enoch said this, whether, whether he's saying, and it was recorded accurately in First Enoch, or he's saying this was an oral tradition that is accurate. Our question for this morning is this. Is what Enoch said true? Is this a true statement? Look at what is said, verse 14. He said, he prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. He's speaking of the Lord. Interesting here, term Lord is referring to Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to come with ten thousands, plural, of his holy ones. Who are those? Angels. It says the Lord is coming with his angels. And what will he do when that happens? Verse 15. He's going to execute judgment on all and convict all. All the ungodly, of all their ungodly deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let me ask you, is that true? Will the Lord come back with his angels to judge the earth? Well, don't take my word for it. Look at what Jesus said. This is the ancient warning. Don't follow these false teachers. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man, who's that? It's Jesus, and he's talking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And I didn't give you the rest of the context, but the throne is not one simply of rule. It's a throne of judgment, and it says that he will actually distinguish between people, sheep and goats. And Jesus said this is what he would do. Now, Jude is picking up on that and says, even in your oral tradition or ancient literature, you have this, that the Lord is coming again, and when he comes, he'll come in judgment. Now, what is the nature of this judgment? 
here's the ancient warning. Don't follow the false teachers because their judgment is certain. What is the nature of this judgment? I want you to know this judgment is universal. Look at verse 14. Enoch prophesied, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on what? All. And to convict who? All the ungodly. Of what? All their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many times did he say all? Okay? He's, he's emphasizing something, right? What he's emphasizing is this. When Jesus comes back again, nobody's fooling him. He knows everything that has happened. All the people, all the ungodliness, all the ungodly things they've said, maybe even in their heart and not necessarily with their lips. This judgment is universal. No one and nothing will escape God's penetrating gaze at the judgment. Despite what these false teachers may have claimed. Remember, he's dealing with people who have turned the grace of God into ungodly living. They've said, this really isn't a big deal to God. We can live however we want to. And they are bringing shame upon the gospel of Christ. And Jude says, don't you know, millennia ago, Enoch talked about this, and nobody's getting away with anything. Don't be fooled. They can talk all they want to about how it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal with God. His judgment is all-inclusive and universal, and nobody gets away with anything. Also, their judgment is moral. Look at it again. Verse 15. He's going to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many times does he use ungodly? Four times. Do you think he's emphasizing something? What does it mean to be ungodly? Or what does it mean to be godly? Godliness really has the idea of somebody who lives with a proper reverence of God. Every single day they get up and they're aware, I'm not the most important thing in this universe. God is. He's made me. He's redeemed me if I know him by faith through Christ. And today I live in his all-encompassing gaze. I live for things that please him. I want to properly honor him and serve him and love him. That's the godly spirit. It's, it's a Godward focus that properly reveres God. So you tell me, what is ungodliness? Ungodliness wakes up and says, I'm the most important thing in the universe today. Therefore, how can I get more out of this universe to make me feel better? How can I get people to recognize that about me? And how can I live to please myself without any restraint? 
Ungodliness has no awareness or reverence for God. And notice that Jude says that this judgment will do this according to verse 15. The Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all. What does it mean to convict? Convict means to show to be guilty. So you have these people that solely live for themselves without this proper reverence of God. And it says when Jesus comes back, it's going to be demonstrated that that was not the way to live. They will be convinced of that. Obviously, when they're face to face with him. So how were these false teachers ungodly? Well, it appears to me that these false teachers thought that somehow they were free from any scrutiny from God. Maybe they talked about God. Maybe they had said things about God. But, but the way they lived their life was indication that they weren't fearful of any moral judgment to come. They didn't really revere God and understand him in that way, that there is a God who hates sin. And therefore, they committed it themselves and encouraged other people in that and said, it's not that big a deal. Maybe they said grace overcomes it and, and God's grace is so great, which it is. But, but they made almost a mockery of it and said, you can live however you want to then. And without this proper reverence of God, it invaded the church and crept into immoral kind of living and it threatened the, the veracity of the faith, the truth about God, that he is concerned about how we live. And there will be an accounting. And this is the assumption of many well-intentioned people today. People today who live their life as if, well, God's just kind of this heavenly grandfather that we have to appease every now and then, but he's really not as strict as you read in the Bible. I mean, there's things you read in the Bible. Would God really mean that? Don't take his name in vain. When I text OMG, am I sinning against God? I don't know. You tell me. What has God said? Do I properly revere his name? Do I take that seriously? Or is that just, nah, it's not that big a deal. It's a little sin. Is this not the assumption of people, even people within the body of Christ today, that work so hard to say it doesn't really matter what God says? Don't be so narrow-minded. What's wrong with you? And Jude says, God feels very strongly about this. And when he comes back, everyone's going to know it. Jude speaks of two things in particular. Verse 15, he says, of these ungodly people and what they've done committed in an ungodly way, their deeds. And then look at the end of verse 15. He says, and of all the harsh things, ungodly sinners have what? Spoken against him. And now verse 16 elaborates on this speaking against God. Because look at these things listed in verse 16. Jude applies this statement. He said, these, these false teachers, they're what? Grumblers. You do that with your lips, right? 
malcontents. That's the source of it. They follow their own sinful desires, but they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. We would say flattery at the end of verse 16. And he goes on and he says, these people are noted by what they say. Their judgment is upon them in this way. Here's this ancient warning. And let's just walk through these things in verse 16 when he talks about these grumblers, right? Their words are troublesome and they reveal their hearts. Why does he call these people grumblers, these false teachers? Well, I think he's really referring back to what we read in verse 5 when he talks about Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's he referring to? He's referring to the time that the people left Egypt, they experienced the Red Sea crossing, they went right up to the Jordan River ready to cross into the promised land, they sent in the spies, the spies gave an ill report, and they said, we can't go in there, our children will become a prey to those people. And they didn't believe. And you know what they did? Let me show you, look at Numbers 14. The book of Numbers in the 14th chapter records for us this story. Chapter 13 records the spies going in, spying out the land. They bring back a mixed report. Ten of them were a bad report. Two of them were good. Numbers 14 verse 1 says this, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel did what? Grumbled grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become a prey. Was it not better for us to go back to Egypt? Woe is me. This is horrible. Is that not grumbling? What did the Lord think about this? Do you know that the Lord was willing to strike those people down right there? But Moses interceded for them. Why? Because they grumbled. You say, well, what's the big deal? I, I grumbled the other day because it was so hot. Why is it so hot here? I can't... Is grumbling really that big a deal? Look at verse 20. Numbers 14, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses, I've heard your intercession. Verse 21, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, they shall, not see, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. God says when they're grumbling against me, what they're doing is they're despising me. They're rejecting me. Look what he says in verse 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. And Jude picks up on this now in our text in Jude 16. And he says, these false teachers among you, you know them. Here's what they do. They grumble. They're constantly complaining. 
They're constantly saying, well, the pastor did this, or, well, these people did this, or, well, these people are like this. Why do we have to do this? Did God really say this? They're grumbling against the Lord, it says, and perhaps against his leaders. Jude goes on in verse 16, he says they're grumblers and they're what? Malcontent. All right, what's the connection between grumbling and discontentment? Grumbling is what comes out of my lips. Discontentment is what is at the root in my heart. That's why I grumble. What is a malcontent? It's someone who is not joyous and loving, but rather critical quick to find fault in others, and even in God himself. God, why did you put me here? Why did you give this to me? Why do I have these children? Why am I always in this mess? The malcontent is never pleased with his or her circumstances. They constantly bemoan their present condition, and there's a constant state of discontent in their heart that reveals itself in this constant grumbling or whining. And Jude says these false teachers are like that. Just listen to them. They creep in among you, and they they stir things up this way. Well, why do we have to do it this way? Why is this so important? The grumbling and discontent heart, beloved, is an unbelieving heart. That's what those people did in the wilderness. They weren't content with what God was going to do. And because of that, God said, because of your unbelief, you will wander in the wilderness. Be careful of a discontent and grumbling spirit. It's tied to an unbelieving heart. What do I not believe about God that makes me this way? Because of that, in Jude 16, they're grumblers, they're malcontents, and they do what? Follow their own sinful desires. I think there's a connection here still. When you have someone who's constantly discontent in their hearts, they're grumbling about it, they're always critical and in a a negative way, They're looking for contentment somewhere and a quick fix is sexual immorality. Another quick fix, drugs, alcohol. Because of the discontentment of my heart, I need some relief of this constant discontentment I'm in and never having found satisfaction in Christ and I look for it in other places the quickest way possible. These grumblers and malcontents, Jude says, they're given over to sinful desires. And when you're given over to things like that, but you proclaim to be spiritual, look at verse 16. They are also loud mouth boasters. I think it means that they have to speak loudly enough and firm enough to convince themselves and other people that what they're doing is fine. 
They're malcontent and grumbling and involved in sinful desires, but they try to salve their conscience, and so they speak firmly, and they speak loudly about it, and they boast, who are you to judge me? In a way to try to condone or salve their conscience. In the end, these people show favoritism to gain advantage. They show flattery. They say smooth things to those people that will reward them or get on the bandwagon with them. And Jude is laying them to task and saying, in all that they say, they will give an account to God. All those harsh things they say against God will come back upon them. So Jude says, don't follow them. Heed the warning. I'm very tempted to give names of people, not in this church, that that are well known on the internet and among Christendom that it's like you just read their biography in some way. And I'll just leave it at that and say, be cautious. Be alert. Heed the ancient warning and quickly heed the recent warning. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of who? The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jude an apostle? No. He's the brother of Christ, but he is not of the apostolic company, those chosen by Christ himself. So Jude appeals to that authority, and he says, listen, I'm not only the only one warning you about this. Enoch said something about it, and, and listen to the apostles. What have the apostles said? Well, here's what Paul said. The apostles' warning is clear. The apostle Paul said this in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Paul gave a warning. He said, I'm warning you, there are going to be false teachers that come in. Be careful. Look out. And he says, even from among you. And you know what he's talking to? Ephesian elders pastors of the church at Ephesus. He says, right among you, there will be these imposters. Look at this warning. This is probably the one that Jude is referring to. Turn back a few pages to 2 Peter 2. Go left in your Bible, just a few pages. You're going to find 2 Peter 3, rather. 2 Peter 3. (coughs) And look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle, writes and says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved, and both uh, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own what? their own sinful desires. I find this interesting that Peter says scoffers will come following their sinful desires. Jude says they're here. Peter warned you about this. 
there here. What about these scoffers? Well, look back at Jude, verse 17. He says, uh, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Where did Jude get that? We just looked at it from Peter. And what's the specific warning? There are going to be scoffers. People who scoff at the truth of God. And in the context, I think Jude is speaking of people that scoff at God's attitude towards sin. That God isn't really serious about how we live. It's all covered. Doesn't really matter. And they're scoffing the justice of God. Well, Jude's warning is clear. What are these people like? That this will be done. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> it is these who cause what? Divisions. Beloved, here's what typically happens. You have a congregation, and among that congregation, you have people there that are really earnest about living for the Lord. And they're really earnest about revering Him and honoring Him. And so they want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And then you have people that come into a congregation and they say, well, you know, is that really, do we really need to live that way? I mean, I mean, we look so strange. I mean, are people really comfortable when they come in here? I mean, you know, are, are, are people, you know, going to come in here? How are we going to reach people if, if we're living this way according to the Bible and look so different? And I'm talking about things the Bible explicitly says. Don't misunderstand. And then you have these people that are really earnest about following the Bible and they say, this is what God says. I think we need to honor God and revere God. We're not here just to please people and try to get people in the door. And those people that want people in the door and maybe loosen up on all of God's stringent ways start saying, you people are being divisive. You people that are so concerned about doctrine and, and living according to God's word, you're being divisive. And I just want to say to you, beloved, who does God's word say is being divisive? It's those people that abandon the truth and the practice that flows from it. He says, these are the ones causing division. They're trying to get in and sift people away. Why would they do that? Verse 19, it's, it's these who cause divisions they're worldly people. Now, there's a word that's, that's loaded with baggage, right? What is worldly? And I think we misunderstand this often. Worldly simply means this. It's somebody who's characterized by this present order. It's akin to what I described to you when I said ungodly. It's somebody whose mind is solely focused on this present order that is passing away. All they care about is what is here and now, what I can see. Their mind focus is entirely on the here and now, the material. 
And because that is the case, that's all they're thinking about, that's all they're after, that's all they strive for. Jude says, you're dealing with people that are ungodly. They have no fear of God, no awareness of His presence, no idea of the fact that what they do now has a bearing on eternity. And they're confined to this finite material world. They're worldly. And, the end of verse 19, they're devoid of the Spirit. What's he saying there? He's saying they're unregenerate. These are not God's people. They're creating divisions. Their mind is entirely on their own sensual desire, living for the here and now. And they're just demonstrating evidence that the Spirit of God doesn't even live inside of them. Jude says, the apostles warned us about these people. They're here now, and you must be aware as well. To contend for the faith, all of us must be contending for the faith. We must be alert and heeding the warning concerning false teachers. Last slide failed to make it in, I'm sorry. point for us this morning is this. We must be alert and heed the warnings. False teachers exist in the church today. Do you believe that? You know what it's easy for us to do? It's easy for us to sit here and say, oh yeah, I know that. I was in a church like that. But not in this church. Listen, who, who is Jude talking to? Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want you to look down that row with suspicion. Oh, maybe there's one right there. Don't look, okay? Because some people get really worked up about this, and they say, oh, yeah, I heard what that person said. That wasn't right. And let me just explain to you. Sometimes people are misguided. It doesn't mean they're a false teacher. It just means that they don't know, and maybe they just need some help. Maybe they need some clear instruction and, and maybe they need some discipling, we would say, about living for the Lord. But I think we have to realize there are, in congregations like this and others, people that really would fit this model and say, they really are here grumbling malcontents to create division. And the warning is be alert. Heed that warning. Let me give you this and I'm done. <clears throat> Maybe you say, well, how would I know a false teacher? Not just in this church, but with the way things are on the internet and what you hear driving to work on your radio and podcasts. How would, how would I know that, that, that these are the kind of peoples I should be warned about? Let me just give you one thing today. Beware of Bible teachers that take sin lightly. What I mean is they don't ever address it or talk about it. In fact, they say, I don't want to offend people. And therefore, their message is only always positive. God has this for you this for you. And, and I'm not saying we have to every 
every message be hard on sin. But if somebody, that is their bent, it's only, always, this is what God has for you. It's always, only, positive. And it never brings you to grips with the fact that, no, you are responsible before God. Beware. Be cautious. I'll give you a man, Joel Osteen. If you listen, that's all you ever hear. But it sounds so Christian and so right. Makes me feel good. That's the point. The other thing, though, and I think we really need to focus on this because in our circles, this is the tendency. Beware of those that only talk about sin. And here's what I mean. Those that only talk about the sin of all those bad people out there. The internet is rife with teachers like this who get up from their pulpits and the only thing they say time and time again is about those wicked homosexual people. And I was dealing with a young man with regard to this who, who had heard this kind of teaching and had been sucked into it and he himself became very disgruntled and malcontent against any kind of authority. And I had to caution him and warn him and say, you're listening to a false teacher. And it's infecting you. Because all they want to do is talk about the sins, those bad sins of other people, and never address the sins in their own heart. Or those sins that might be among a congregation like Pharisaic. Beware of those. These are God's warnings. Let's heed them well that we would contend for the faith. Shall we pray? Lord, we believe your word. You yourself said there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. It was warned from ancient times. It was proven among the people of God through repeated example in your word. The apostles said it would come. Jude said it was happening in his day. It has always been the case among your people. But may we not be naive. May we test what we hear. We look at the fruit of that teaching that we would contend for the faith, that we would uphold the true gospel and the truth of your word. And so help us to do that here by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's close by singing just the first stanza of the rock of age is cleft for us. You know, you read those warnings in the New Testament and you think it's a wonder that anybody survives that, right? If there was this constant warning about false teaching and false teachers coming in. Remember, that's, this is why Jude begins and ends. He will keep you. He will keep you. He's like a rock for you to hide in, to run to.
Let's stand, please, as we sing.